You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You'll notice that I brought a bottle of water up here with me. That is not because I plan on becoming an emergent preacher and sitting on my bench with my music stand in front of me and tell you stories from our collective meta-narrative while I sip Evian spring water out of a bottle for the next 45 minutes. It's because for the last week I have been battling a chest cold. So I'm going to go as far as I can today. If I get into a coughing fit, then I'll just stop early and we'll have lunch together. And that's really your secret prayer and desire on a potluck Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) Some of you have been praying for me all week long. Let him have his cold. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 2, sorry, verses 18 through verse 26. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are grateful for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, not the least of which is your word in our own language, that we may read it and understand it and obey it. We thank you for the truth of Scripture and for the warnings that are contained even here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to get your perspective on our work and our labor and the fruit of our labor and what it what it does to serve and honor and glorify you. We pray your blessing upon this time and that you would keep our minds and hearts focused on the text that is before us, that you may be honored and glorified through your people understanding your word as it is intended by the Spirit of God. Be our our aid and our comfort and our guide in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're picking up and halfway through what we looked at last week, which was the four different vanities uh, that Solomon lists here in the last half of this chapter. There are four things that he calls vanity. All of them have to do with our labor and our work. In verses 18 to 26, the subject that is chief on chief at the top of Solomon's mind is the subject of work or labor. The word labor occurs 11 times in these verses, and then you add to that verses 22, 23, and 26, which mention striving and task. And you can see what is central in Solomon's thinking. It is the, the, the labor that he does, the work that he does under the sun, and what will become of it. What is the fruit of it? And what happens to the fruit of his labor? And over all of that work that Solomon has done and all of that he has accumulated stands death, casting its shadow over all of that and making Solomon question what is the point or what is the advantage to a man in all the work that he does under the sun. And there are four times in the passage that Solomon uses the phrase, this too is vanity. And so there are four different distinct things that Solomon says are meaningless or empty. And all of these have to do with his labor and the fruit of his labor. 
The first is in verse 19, at the end of verse 19, where he says, this too is vanity. And in verses 18 and 19, Solomon described laboring only to give all of the fruit of your labor over to somebody who may may or may not be a fool. This is what we looked at last week. And the second thing that he calls vanity is in verses 20 and 21, and that is laboring and heaping up all of these goods only to turn them over to somebody who has not worked for them, hasn't earned them, and therefore is undeserving of receiving everything that you have worked for. That too, Solomon says, is vanity. And then there are two more things that Solomon says are vanity, and these are the things we're going to be looking at today. Laboring excessively, and then losing your labor by not enjoying any of it, any of the fruit of your labor. And the fourth one is laboring excess, laboring without giving any thought to God, and then turning it all over to the righteous. These are the things that Solomon says are vanity. They're emptiness and, and chasing after the wind. Now in verses 22, actually beginning of verse 24, <coughs> Solomon beginning of verse 24, Solomon uh, gives us some positive or, or uplifting news and a perspective on labor and the fruit of our labor. And last week I gave you a couple of positive things about work and some things to keep in mind regarding labor because it's not all negative. It's not all something to despair of, like he says in verse 22. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned last week is that because of the resurrection, I'm just giving this, I'm trying to give you some of the good news up front here. Um, one of the things that, that gives our, our work and our labor and the fruit of our labor significance is the, is the doctrine of the resurrection. Because there is a bodily resurrection and a life after this life, therefore we can know and believe that all of the work that we do under the sun is not completely in vain, it is not lost, it is not empty. That is a perspective that Solomon did not have. It's a, a perspective that we have. We don't despair of our work. Instead, we rejoice in it knowing that our labor in, in the Lord is not in vain. That because of the resurrection, everything that we do in this life will be rewarded and remembered in the life that is to come. And the second thing I mentioned to you last week is that all of our work, all legitimate work and occupation can be done to the glory of God and receive an eternal reward. All legitimate work can be done to the glory of God and receive an eternal reward. Now, obviously, and I'm talking here of your vocation, your job, whether you work in a factory making widgets or whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a, an accountant or whatever it is that you do, all legitimate work can be done to the glory of God. Now, obviously, there are some occupations that cannot be done to the glory of God because they are illicit by the very nature of what they are themselves. You can't be a drug pusher to the glory of God. You can't be a, an assassin. You can't be a pimp. You can't be a prostitute. You can't play football for the Dallas Cowboys. These are all things... That by, by the very nature of the thing itself is illicit. So that's why I say all legitimate work or labor can be done for the glory of God. And we can expect that that work or labor that is done can be done not only to the glory of God, but receive an eternal reward. So that I can live my entire life, even if it's 40 years or 60 years in the workforce, laboring and working, knowing that what I am creating will be rewarded and what I am creating will be remembered and what I am doing can be done for the glory of God. For his honor, for his honor and for his glory. This, by the way, is something, if you heard of the Protestant work ethic, have you ever heard that phrase, Protestant work ethic? What it means is, there was something that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It's appropriate that I mention this now because tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that the Protestant Reformation recovered and that the Reformers recovered was the biblical view of vocation. They developed quite heartily a doctrine of vocation or work. Because prior to the Protestant Reformation, there was amongst the people, in large part because this is what the the clergy taught people and what people were taught to believe, is that if you worked in some menial or worldly task that was in no way connected to the the clergy or the administration of God or the work of the church, that 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 was secular employment and that none of that really counted. And that 
Your only hope was that God would call you out of that into something that would honor and glorify Him, being a a priest or a monk or a nun or a choir boy or something like that, associated with the work of the church. And that's where the the real significant work came. And Martin Luther and the other reformers uh, taught against that. And they said that this distinction between that which is profane and that which is holy was a false distinction. Now, obviously, we're talking about there are some occupations that are profane and that Christians should not be involved in those. But the, the bulk of what we do, and everybody in this room would be in this camp, we are not involved in occupations that are profane and worldly and that cannot receive a reward. And the Protestants said this distinction between that which is profane and that which is holy is a false one. Right? Because I... Because I preach for a living and I teach and I counsel and I, and I do the work of ministry, that doesn't make me in some way greater or the work that I do in any way greater than what you do. You, you may work in your occupation for 40 years and you do it faithfully to the glory of God, employing the talents and the gifts that He has given to you and it is an act of service unto Him and it will be rewarded and it will be remembered in the life that is to come. And you do it for His honor and glory. That is the vocation, the calling that God has put upon your life. Some people think that you're not called to do anything unless God calls you to some uh, clerical employment of some sort. And that is a, that is a false and bogus distinction. The reformers helped us <clears throat> recover that, dis- that, uh, that teaching on, on Christian vocation and labor so that all of our labor can have meaning and significance. So that's a little bit about what we talked about last week and, uh, a little bit of extra stuff that we didn't mention last week that I threw in because today is the Sunday before Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day to you. That's tomorrow, 440, 499 years. Next year, next October is the big 5-0. Oh, five oh oh, big five hundred. We ought to do something positive for that. There's something good for that to recognize it. Okay, so now the third thing that Paul calls or Paul, boy, I'm still back in. <clears throat> wow, not, that wasn't even John, was it? <laughs> I got to go back before John to get to Paul. Something I said with Paul in it. Okay, the third thing that Solomon calls a vanity is laboring excessively and then not even enjoying the labor or the fruit of your labor. And, and that is a way in which we lose the fruit of our labor. So remember the first two things that he calls vanity are losing the fruit of our labor either to one who may or may not be a wise person who may squander it and might turn it over to a fool. The second way is by losing it to somebody who has not earned it and not worked for it and therefore does not deserve it. We looked at the ways that that happens. The third way that we lose the fruit of our labor and work for nothing is if we work and labor and yet we don't even get to enjoy it. So look at verse 22. For what does a man get in all... <coughs> What does a man get in all his labor and in his striving for with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, and even at night his mind does not rest. Uh, verse 22 is a rhetorical question. It is if Solomon is saying, so, so what does he get for it? A man labors and he takes everything that he has earned, turns it over to a fool, or a man labors and takes everything that he's earned, turns it over to somebody who doesn't deserve it, hasn't worked for it. So what does a man get? And the, and the only answer that he is anticipating there is that we would say nothing. That's the answer that Solomon is expecting even by raising the question. What does man get for this? And the answer from his perspective is nothing. Now, given Solomon's perspective, given that it is life under the sun, that he is describing here the, the vantage point or perspective on work and life and labor and the fruit of our labor, apart from God's revelation on these matters, granted Solomon's perspective on this, there is, we are hard pressed to answer this question with anything positive. What does a man get for all that he works for? For all that he does? And Solomon has actually been spending a chapter and a half setting us up to answer this. 
Remember back in chapter 1, despite, despite all of the work and the labor and the effort that is done under the sun, nothing has changed, nothing is new, nothing is remembered. You get to chapter 2, despite all of Solomon's efforts in building parks and gardens and ponds and, and all of that good stuff for himself and his palaces and his houses and all of that, despite all of his activity and work, what did Solomon get for it? Just the labor itself, Solomon said. And on top of that, he accumulated all of these things and then Solomon expected that he might have to turn it over to one who may be a fool or he might have to turn it over to one who has not deserved it. And so Solomon says at the end of all of this, what then does a man get in all of his work and labor which he does under the sun? And he's describing here uh, the vexing aspect of our labor. Look at all the negative words that Solomon uses. He uses labor, striving, he labors under the sun. Verse 23, his task is painful and grievous, and even at night his mind does not rest. You notice that Solomon is describing the vexing nature of work, not the virtuous part of work. Right? There's a virtuous and noble element to work that we talked about last week, and then there is the, the vexing and, and, and exhausting and toilsome nature of work. Those two things kind of go hand in hand there. There is a nobility to it, but also a vexing part to it. And Solomon is describing here that, that burden that work is. And in all the work that you do under the sun, granted again his perspective, what does a man get for all of that? Verse 23, because all his days his task is painful and grievous, and even at night his mind does not rest. Can you relate to that? You work all day long. right? You go to work early, you work all day long, you exhaust yourself, and then you come home and you pick up your phone and you answer emails about work on your phone, right? You check your Facebook page to see what happened at work and what needs to happen at work and what's going on tomorrow. And then you open up a few spreadsheets and before long you spent three or four hours in the evening doing all of the work that you left at work undone that you thought couldn't wait until tomorrow. And then you go to bed hoping for eight straight hours of solitude and rest and rejuvenation. And then suddenly you find yourself awake at two o'clock in the morning. You're not even sure if you really went to sleep because your mind was active the whole time. You're not even sure if you went to sleep, but then you can't even explain to yourself why it is that you are awake or even when you woke up, but suddenly you're laying there, you don't even know how long you've been laying there, thinking about what? What you just worked on all day long or what you have to work on the next day when you wake up. And then you decide to pick up your phone and check some emails again and see if anything got resolved in the middle of the night while everybody else was sleeping and you weren't. <clears throat> so you work all day long and your day is spent with this, this toil and this work and painful and grievousness and then at night it's just preoccupied tossing. So your days are toil and your nights are tossing. And then you repeat the whole thing all over again the very next day. That's the vexing aspect of work, isn't it? And I think Solomon knew this. Lying in bed at night, thinking about the parks and the gardens, and is it all going to come together? Is it all going to come together on time? And all of his building projects. This was a man who knew how to exhaust himself. And in all, after exhausting himself in all of these activities under the sun, what's the point of that? What really is the point? Of you working like that. It's not to say that you shouldn't work and you shouldn't work hard. That's not what we're talking about. Or doing it to the glory of God. That's not what we're talking about. But when your days are filled with pain and your nights are filled with preoccupation and you don't even get any rest, what is the point of that? Especially given what Solomon says, that you may turn it over to a fool, you may turn it over to one who doesn't deserve it, or you may die and give it all away to somebody more righteous than you. What good does that do you? So verse 23, he is describing there that vexing aspect of our work and he says, this too is vanity. It is vanity. All this work that we do when our mind doesn't rest and our days are filled with pain and, and we come home exhausted and aching from our day's work and we can't enjoy it. And that's what verse 24 is at. Now we reach sort of a transition point in the, uh, in the passage. Everything, this is actually a transition point in these first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Keep in mind that everything up to verse 24 has just been describing life under the sun, 
from the vantage point of God being removed from the equation without his input or without his oversight in any of this. This is just what a man gets in all of his work and his labor without giving any thought to God. But in verse 24, Solomon changes in that perspective. All of a sudden, he brings God into the picture in verse 24. And this is where we get some positive or encouraging, some positive or encouraging uh, news or wisdom regarding work and labor. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Now, there are four times in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon uses, uh, introduces a proverb with this phrase, there is nothing better than, or there, there is nothing, uh, nothing good except is kind of the idea. And I'll give you the other three. There's this one here, and I'll read the other three verses to you. Ecclesiastes 3.12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Now, notice there's another positive statement about rejoicing and doing good and enjoying something. Ecclesiastes 3.22, I have seen that nothing is better than that the man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And then Ecclesiastes 8.15, so I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good, or better is the idea, for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in all his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given to him under the sun. In each of those four passages, Solomon is Solomon is doing the same thing. He is commending to us a life that is lived before the face of God, receiving every day and what it contains and the blessings that come with it from God's hand with a thankful attitude of contentment. That is what he is describing. Every once in a while in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon kind of lifts his face up out of the mud, as it were, and gives us some good, sound, positive wisdom, something that he has learned. But this perspective that Solomon gives, eating and drinking and enjoying life and being merry and rejoicing, those are things that don't make any sense for somebody apart from the vantage point of having God involved in this equation. But for Solomon now bringing God into it, all of a sudden there is something good, isn't there? Verse 22 is rhetorical. What good is there? And we expect Solomon to come back and say, nothing. But then we get this twist in verse 24. Well, you bring God into this equation, and suddenly there is something good. What is it that is good? That you eat, and that you drink, and that you enjoy these things from the hand of God, for these things come from Him, and who can eat, and who can have enjoyment except from God? That is Solomon's wisdom. If you work excessively, laboring all day, toiling to the point of exhaustion, losing sleep at night over your job, but you cannot even eat and drink and enjoy the things that that labor provides for you, then you are actually losing the fruits of your labor. And Solomon sees this enjoyment of these things as something that comes from the hand of God. Now, there are two different ways that some people interpret this uh, this verse Verse 24, there's nothing better for man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. There are two different views on this. Some people think Solomon here is just recommending hedonism, right? The, the passionate pursuit of pleasure, that he's just saying, well, look, if all there is to life is work and you're going to work and make yourself exhausted during the day and then not even be able to sleep at night, then you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. If this is all there is to life, then live it to the fullest. Eat like a glutton, drink like a fish, enjoy everything as much as you possibly can, and just give it all up to merriment because eventually you're going to die and you're going to perish anyway. Some people see that as what Solomon is saying. I don't think that that's Solomon's perspective here. I think that he is legitimately describing these things as blessings from God to be enjoyed in the way that God intends for them to be enjoyed, which is why at the end of verse 24, he says, This I have also seen that it is from the hand of God. What is from the hand of God? It's from the hand of God that we eat and that we drink and that we tell ourselves that our labor is good. 
It is from the hand of God that we have enjoyment. Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Solomon sees these things as genuine blessings from God. The eating and the drinking. Now, eating and drinking are the most mundane and sometimes mindless parts of life. These are the most basic elemental parts of, of, of the elements, uh, the most basic elements of the fruit of our labor. You, you don't labor all day so that you can buy extravagances, do you? No, you shouldn't. You labor all day so that you can take your money and use it to provide for your basic needs, eating and drinking. If your basic needs are met, then you have some money left over. Then you can buy some things that are non-necessities. But if you and your family are 24 hours away from starving to death and somebody walks up and gives you a $100 bill, you don't go out and buy a pair of Air Jordans with those, do you? No, now that's an 80s reference for kids today. Uh, translate that into whatever uh, fad or fashion is popular this week that would be a total waste of $100. In my day, you wouldn't do that. But if your basic needs are met, you're well-fed and your family is cared for and you have an extra 100 bucks, then you might consider buying something that is an extravagant. So Solomon is describing here with eating and drinking the basic provisions of life. If you work all day and you labor all night through your sleep and you can't even eat and drink and enjoy that, then really what is the point? And so there is something to be gained from our labor, the fruit of our labor, which is the basic elements of our provision. Solomon is saying the ability to enjoy these things comes from the hand of God, the eating and the drinking. And he says, tell yourself that your labor is good. Now, Solomon is not saying you need to talk yourself to work every day, right? You've got to convince yourself that your labor is pointless, not pointless and that it's worth something, right? You just you, you talk yourself up all day long. This is, it's not a, this is not vain. This is not meaningless. It's not under the sun. I really can't do this. There is good in... Solomon is not saying that. What Solomon is saying is you need to be reminded that in this sense your labor is good. It provides for you food and drink, which God has given to you to enjoy. There is something redeemable about laboring under the sun, laboring in this world, and it is that that is the means by which God has given to us to provide for our basic needs. Now listen, if you don't enjoy those things, you've lost all the fruit of your labor and there is no point to it. But God is gracious in that he gives us not just the eating and drinking to enjoy, but has not God abundantly provided for everybody in this room far more than even our basic necessities would require. That is the truth of it. He has given to us far more than just what we need to exist. And he has given these things to us for our enjoyment, which is why he says in verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment apart from him? And I want you to notice again how God is seen here. And by the way, this is one of the, the positive statements about God and one of the first that Solomon makes in this book, uh, that seeing God in a positive light or describing God in positive life, not as one who, who heaps upon us this toil and this burden and this task, but one who gives us graciously these blessings to enjoy. Who can have enjoyment apart from God? Can you have any enjoyment at all, if not by the gift of God? Now, an atheist at this point would object and say, hold on a second, I enjoy all kinds of things and I don't believe in God. So believing in God is not necessary to enjoying good things in life. But that's not my point and that's not Solomon's point. My point is not that you need to believe in God in order to enjoy good things, but my point is that without God, whom you deny, you wouldn't be able to enjoy anything. You may deny that God exists and still enjoy His blessings, just like I might deny that authors exist and still read books. You would say that is insanity. You're right, it is. Atheism is insanity, denying that God exists. Our argument is not that God is necessary to your life for you to be able to enjoy things, but that, or belief in God is necessary to your life to be able to enjoy things. But if God should so will, He can remove for you not only remove from you not only the blessings that you enjoy, but the ability even to enjoy anything. 
So it is only because God exists and because He is gracious and good that He has given to us these blessings to enjoy. But if you work all day and you work all night and you can't even enjoy eating and drinking, then what is the point? So enjoy the blessings that God has given to you. A couple of weeks ago we talked about the theology of enjoyment. Again, these things come from the hand of God and we ought to enjoy them and bless God for them. So the fourth thing that Solomon says is vanity. is in verse 26. And this is laboring with no thought to God only to turn it all over to the righteous. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. This, I think, is one of the most intriguing verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's something here that kind of strikes you as a bit odd and something that we should probably correct or set straight. It does seem as if Solomon is describing a view of God here that is not biblical or orthodox. Uh, He is describing two people here. There are those who are good in God's sight, and then there are those who are the sinners. To those who are good in God's sight, God has given joy and wisdom and knowledge, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering up and accumulating so that that person may turn around and give everything he accumulates into the hands of the one who is good in God's sight. That seems to suggest that Solomon believes in his teaching that God deals with people according to their goodness. That to good people or people who are good, God gives blessings. And to people who are not good and don't do good, God takes away these things. And that is indeed how most of the world, in their conception of God, however they conceive of Him, think that the the whole economy of heaven works. That if you get a promotion or you get an advance in your raise or something good happens to you or something is fortunate and happens to you, it must be because you've got the favor. So you did something to enjoy the uh, do something good, and it was good in God's sight, and it pleased Him enough so that He kind of... Cha-ching, just gave you a blessing. You know, you do something good for him. He does something good for you. That seems to be what it suggests, right? Whereas to the bad person, God gives a task, an onerous task of gathering and collecting only to take it from him and give it to the one who is good in God's sight. As if God's economy works that we do good and so we get good. If we do bad, we get bad. That seems to be what Solomon is suggesting at first glance. But the question, now here's how I want you to think about it. Who is it that is good in God's sight and why are they good in God's sight? That's really the question. Who is it that is good in God's sight? Because doesn't Scripture say there is none good, no, not one? Doesn't Scripture say that man, uh, God is no man's debtor and that every blessing that we receive is a grace, which means that it's not earned or deserved? And so we don't do good things in order to receive good things. That is certainly not the idea biblically. And so by looking at it this way, who is it that is good in God's sight and how do we get good in God's sight? We'd have to go back to something, and this again is a Protestant doctrine, of justification by faith and imputed righteousness. How is it that I am good in God's sight? Because I will tell you, I am good in God's sight. I can tell you that without even blushing. I am very good in God's sight. In fact, I'm perfect in God's sight. And so are you, if you've trusted in Christ. How is it that we are good in God's sight? We are good in God's sight because of the goodness of another that is imputed or credited to our account. So that when the Father looks upon us, due to our faith in Christ, He sees not our righteousness or our goodness, but the goodness and righteousness of another. He sees a righteousness that is not our own. So those who are good in God's sight are good in God's sight because God has made them good in His sight by imputing to them a righteousness and a goodness that they did not earn and do not deserve. So in that sense, it is very true that there are righteous and there are sinners. There are those who are good in God's sight, again, because God has made them good in His sight. And you could say that about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that when God looked at Abraham, he saw goodness. He saw perfection, and he saw righteousness 
Not because Abraham was a righteous man in that sense, but because Abraham believed God and the righteousness of the perfect son was credited to Abraham's account. And so Abraham was good in God's sight, but only because God made him good through imputed righteousness, by faith, by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we become good. So when you look at the, the, at the, what goodness truly is in God's sense, then this is actually very true. There are the righteous and there are sinners. Now to the righteous, God has given the task, God has given joy and wisdom and knowledge. And notice Solomon's perspective here. Now that God has entered the picture, how does he view wisdom and knowledge? As a good thing. As a blessing from God. Compare that with verse, chapter one, verse 18, where Solomon says that increasing knowledge results in increasing pain and increasing wisdom brings much grief. See, apart from God, knowledge and wisdom, they bring grief and pain. But with God in the perspective, this is the gift that he has given to his righteous ones. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Those are God's gifts. While to the sinner, God has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may turn it over to the one who is good in God's sight. Now that's somewhat odd, isn't it? Can you think of examples where this has happened? Where a sinner has spent his entire life working only to have all of it taken from him and given to somebody who is good in God's sight. Does this really happen? I'll give you some examples from Scripture where this happened. There's numerous of them, numerous examples of it in Scripture. Do you remember when the children of Israel left the land of Egypt and Moses delivered the children of Israel? As they were leaving Egypt, do you remember what happened? Exodus 12, verse 35 says, Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians. And how did the children of Israel plunder the Egyptians? Hey, can you give us some gold and silver and clothing? And God granted the children of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians said, sure. And they heaped upon them gold and silver and clothing as they left the land of Egypt. And thus the children of Israel plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians heaped up all that massive wealth. And then God turned it over and gave it to the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan, is this not exactly what happened? The inhabitants of that land spent over 400 years building houses and vineyards and parks and gardens and, and orchards and walls and cities and all of that. And the children, and, and God took all of that from the Canaanites and gave the entire nation and the entire land with all of that intact to his people who had nothing. In that case, God gave them, those sinners, the task of gathering and collecting and building so that they may turn it over and give it to the one who is good in God's sight. Years later, after the Babylonian captivity, when Zerubbabel went back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel had to stop building the temple, and they stopped for about 15 years until Zechariah and Haggai began to prophesy. Those two minor prophets, they began to prophesy and encourage the people of God to build again. And so they started building. And then the enemies of God came and said, what are you guys doing building the temple? You, you, you were commanded to stop. And right, we were commanded to stop, but we were also commanded by the king of Persia to start before we were commanded to stop. And so the enemies went to King Darius, and they said, Darius, the children of Israel building the temple in Jerusalem. And Darius went back into the archives, and he looked back through the scrolls, and he said, sure enough, they are, but they were commanded to build. So let the entire cost of the temple be funded from the royal treasury. Darius, a pagan king, ended up taking all of the wealth that he had accumulated and turning it over to the children of God. To the sinner, God has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. And then after that, when Nehemiah returned to rebuild the wall, the king asked Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah before he sent him back, 
Why is it that your face is saddened and what do you want? And Nehemiah said, our people lie in ruins and the gates lie in ruins and the walls are broken down of the city of Jerusalem, my beloved city. Send me back. And then Nehemiah asked, and if please, would you give me some timbers from the king's forest? And King Artaxerxes said, sure. And he gave commandment to the keeper of the king's forest to turn over all of the timber necessary for building the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And in that case, God gave to Artaxerxes the task of gathering and collecting so that he turn around and give out of the royal treasury to Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. To the sinner, God has given that task, while to the righteous, uh, so that he may give, turn it over and give it over to the, the righteous one. Now, those are four examples just from Scripture. I'll give you an example from my own life, and probably everybody in here could give a similar example. When Deidre and I were first married, like most young couples, we had nothing. And we were renting a trailer over here in, in Kootenai, and it was the first winter right after we had got married, and work was slow, and I was doing what I could to earn a living and wasn't going that bad. But then I, I was kind of slow on work, and I got a call from a man I had worked for in the past. And he said, look, my house just burned down, and I need the whole thing cleaned out and gutted. The insurance company says it all goes in a dumpster. Will you come and do it? I said, sure. So I needed the work. I went over and I did it. Now, the whole house hadn't burned down. Uh, much of it had burned down, but most of everything else in the house was either uh, smoke-damaged or water-damaged. And there was a lot of stuff that was in perfectly good working condition, just had like a little discoloration on it or it smelled like smoke and he said, as far as the insurance company goes, it's a complete, uh, a complete loss, so throw it all in, the, in this big dumpster. So I went about that, that task, and, and I asked him, can I keep this, can I keep that? And he said, look, anything you want here, it's all going to be replaced. Keep anything you want. So we got a washer and a dryer and a range and a bunch of other furniture, a whole bunch of other stuff, anything that we wanted that they had. And this, this couple had a lot of stuff. It was, a, it was a nice house, and they had a lot of this world's goods, far more than, than we had. And... We got a four-poster cherry wood bedroom set with a triple dresser and an armoire. It was a little smoke damaged. For the first couple of years, you could lay in bed and kind of smell the smoke a little bit, but it was no big deal, right? Then a couple of years later, a lot of scrubbing and everything, and it was all fine. 23 years later, we still use that today. That's our bedroom set. We still use it. At the time, in the 1990s, that was a $6,000 loss. That's what they said the value of it was. $6,000. Today's dollars, that's like a $150,000 bed set. It was a rich blessing. Now, this was not a God-fearing couple. And they were doing it because they liked Deidre and I. They knew us. But they had amassed... Here's how I view it. They had amassed this world's goods. And they had a household of it. And God burnt down just enough so that all of it was considered a loss. And He could take all that they had accumulated and He could turn it over to us. That's what God did. That's how I see it. Every time I read Ecclesiastes 2.26, I think of that. I got a household full of stuff. All because God gave to the task of one particular sinner who did not fear him, gathering and collecting so that he may turn it over to me who's good in God's sight. Does God do that all the time? Does that happen every single day? Does it happen to every single one of us every single week? No, it doesn't. There are still wicked people who are prosperous and they heap up this world's goods. But listen, the other thing the Scripture says is that in the future, this very thing is going to happen on a large scale. I was just reading this last week through Haggai chapter 1. I think it's verse 7 where God promises, I will again shake the heavens and the earth. He will shake the earth and all of the nations will come and they will bring their wealth into my temple. In the future, there is going to come a time when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And all of the nations and all of the wealth of all of the world will belong to the saints of the Most High God. When he establishes his kingdom, let me tell you a poorly kept secret. Everything around us in the resurrection, this whole world, is ours. 
It belongs to the righteous. Right now, the wicked control a whole lot of it, but eventually God is going to shake the foundations of this world and He's going to turn it all over to His people, to His Son and to those who belong to His Son. That is the promise of Scripture. To the sinner, God has given the task of gathering and collecting so that He may give to the one who is good in His sight. Now, I've spoken a lot about eating and drinking and enjoying the blessings that God has given to us, and we have a potluck to enjoy. So let's not delay that any longer. Let's pray. Our great and righteous God, we thank you for your blessings to us. Every day is a reminder that we deserve nothing of what you have given to us, but because you have made us by the righteousness of Christ, pleasing to you, you have also heaped upon us blessing upon blessing, mercy upon mercy, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your kindness and the goodness with which you have uh, showered us and treated us. We pray that you would keep us mindful of the, of the of the truth regarding the work that we do, and may we not lose heart or despair, but to keep in mind the fact that we can do it for your glory, for your honor, and receive an eternal reward. As your people, we praise you and thank you for these kindnesses and these graces. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.